0: And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out the history of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David.
1: You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry.
0: Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 158, Catastrophe at Arras. Before we go on, folks and friends, I should let you know, ta-da, we have a result on the great coin competition. So at the end, you'll be able to find out who and what. Exciting or what? Also today... At the end, we have another contribution from Kevin, so all power to that. But first, sorry, you have to struggle through a long, boring tale of English misery. So just to recap where we are from the last two episodes, and then today we'll try to leap salmon-like to 1435. In France, the Maid of Orléans, Joan of Arc, had transformed French fortunes so that Charles Seventh had been triumphantly and remarkably crowned at the traditional home of French coronations, the Cathedral at Rheims, in July 1429. In England, the fight between Beaufort and Gloucester had been resolved by Bedford's arbitration, and to the greater glory of the blood royal in the form of Gloucester. The rule of England was still very much by the Council of State, and the conciliar approach remained intact. Beaufort, although no longer a chancellor, continued to have influence, but the consensus that had held sway since Henry V's death was without doubt being tested very hard. But nonetheless it held firm. The medieval realm, and I'm sure we've discussed this many times before, relied on the even-handed use of patronage, a king able to manage the delicate relationships between the great families. In the king's name, the council distributed that patronage which came into their hands, and this came in many forms. Now, I think you might remember all of this, but just for completeness. It might be jobs, offices, with a salary attached. Or it could be the wardship of an underage heir, where the guardian could take the revenue of their lands into their own accounts for a while, and maybe even sneakily marry the heir or heiress into their own family. Alternatively, it could be land escheated to the crown. Now, as cheating is not some kind of tactic at cards, it's where the land, for some reason, comes back to the Crown, given that since Billy the Conk, the Crown owned all the land in England anyway. and That was usually because there was no heir at all, but it could be for treason. Anyway, the evidence is that the Council were mildly profligate. By and large, the lands and wardships that did come available to the Crown were handed out again, rather than kept by the Crown for its maintenance but not exceptionally different from normal practice. And it seems that the council did by and large give out that patronage to its own, but the connections of the council were broad enough and wide enough for this not to create any greater upset or imbalance amongst the great families. So a kind of B plus sort of score could do better. But it would be good to give you an example of the sort of shenanigans the great and the good got up to and introduced you also at the same time to a couple of pretty important characters for our future podcasts. So the Neville's were a family that you should remember, you should have heard of before, powerful marcher lords on the northern marches with Scotland, and the western equivalent of the Perses in Northumberland on the eastern marches. Ralph Neville was the second Earl of Westmorland, a figure we've heard of before helping Henry IV put down the Percy and Scroope Rebellion. Ralph Neville was an active member of the Council of State. In 1423, he was rewarded for his long loyalty by being awarded the wardship of one Richard, Duke of York. Now this was quite a catch. You might remember the slightly suspicious plot against Henry V before he sailed for Agincourt, at the end of which Richard, the Duke of Cambridge, had been executed for treason, leaving Richard, his son, as heir. So that Richard, Duke of York, was now 11 and Fabulously wealthy, ladies and gentlemen, fabulously wealthy. Richard, Duke of York, was also heir to the entire Mortimer estate. So essentially, not short of a bob or two, not the kind of lad who had to worry whether he'd be able to afford the groceries this week. Now, Ralph Neville, Earl of Westmorland, was married to a Beaufort, as it happens. Joan Beaufort, daughter of John of Gaunt, sister to Henry Beaufort, our very own Bishop of Winchester, Cardinal, ex-Chancellor and all that sort of thing. Joan Beaufort would prove herself to be nobody's fool, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but guess how many children Ralph Neville had by the time of his death? Go on. No? Well, whoever said 22, yes, correct? Give yourself a pack on the back, because 22 is the correct answer, 18 of whom survived him. He'd been married twice, it has to be said, so he had eight from his first marriage, but Joan had given birth to 14 children, 14 by heck. So back to that patronage thing. Ralph and Joan had a daughter called Cecily, actually the youngest of the entire terrifying Neville brood. She'd been born at the castle of Raby, a massive castle, which is still around, and I've always meant to visit. So, of course, what do you do if you have the richest heir in England in your living room? You marry him off to your daughter, of course. So spookily, in 1425, Richard, aged 13, and Cecily, aged 9, were betrothed. That's the end of my point about the value of patronage, but I need to carry on, just for interest's sake, about the rich and powerful. So when Ralph Neville died in 1425, his wife, Joan of Beaufort, basically stitches up his children by his first marriage. Quite outrageous. And actually, she'd got Ralph's active involvement in the stitching up before he died. So his will, for example, bequeathed the wardship of Richard Megamillions of York to his wife, Joan, until Richard came of age, and his will basically stuffed his children by his first marriage. Thanks, Dad. Thanks, the bundle. So poor old Ralph Neville, his heir, the Earl of Westmorland, spends most of his life trying to get his inheritance back from the evil stepmother. And largely, it has to be said, failing to do so. Family is important. Blood is thicker than water, is the message. Joan and Cardinal Beaufort looked after their own family. In this case, the Duke of Exeter, their brother... Who got part of Richard of York's estates in Ireland? Anyway, Richard of York, Cecily Neville, remember the names, they'll come up again. So, where was I? Patronage, how it worked. So, essentially, the message is that the Council of State managed to hand out these kind of honours reasonably fairly, though, fair dues, the closer your snout was to the trough, the more likely you were to get a bit of the swill. But the Council of State and Bedford in particular as Regent of France were in a panic. As we discussed last week, the Maid of Orléans had changed the whole complexion of the war, curse it, and Charles the Dauphin had been crowned in Rheims Cathedral. Something needed to be done. And in France, Bedford had a chat with his brother-in-law, the Duke of Burgundy. They decided a couple of things. First, they decided that the Burgundians would take over the war in the Champagne region and everything east of Paris. Effectively, this was the end of the current strategy, i.e. the creation of a new French monarchy through English arms. The maid may not have thrown the English out of France as she said she would yet, but she had most certainly transformed the basic context. The English and Burgundians were now on the defensive. Secondly, they decided that a counterstroke was needed. And what could be more counter-strokey than having your own king crowned in Rheims Cathedral? So that was the plan. Get the eight-year-old Henry crowned King of France at Rheims Cathedral. And it seemed like a good plan. But it would have been unthinkable to your parliamentary bufty to have a King of England crowned King of France before he'd been crowned King of England. They'd be forced back to that, you're all going to have to eat croissants thing that Billy the Conk had forced on everybody else. So, first of all, we have the magnificent coronation of Henry in Westminster Abbey. The whole thing was upgraded to bring it into line with the latest French thinking and pomp and circumstance. The thing went on for hours. Lord knows how the lad coped with it. Then there was a massive feast, and everyone had a hoolie. Ya Then in April 1430 a massive expedition left the ports of Sandwich and Dover for France, carrying with them Henry and 300 of his closest friends. And with him, incidentally, was a young man called Richard of York, now 19 and beginning to take an active role in public life. It's a powerful sign of the change in their fortunes that the English couldn't get to Rheims. Actually, Henry held court at Rouen in Normandy for over a year while they tried to organise it, but the way was blocked at Compiègne, which, despite the capture of Joan of Arc there, would not fall to the Burgundians. And so it was decided to go for second best, which was Paris and fair dues. Paris was good enough, Notre-Dame, Cathedral and all of that. Standing in the way of Paris was the town of Louvier. Louvier was in Normandy, but Louvier had been retaken from the English by the Blessed Maid. And it took six hard months' graft to get it back. But eventually the path was cleared. And in December 1431, Henry was crowned in Paris. It was an uncomfortable experience by all accounts. Everyone did their best and all, but there was no getting round the fact that it was all a bit rushed and a bit panicky and a bit rubbish. The food was apparently inedible, and they were out of town and back in Blighty by the end of January 1432, and without any of the usual bequests and traditions. Paris, by this time, felt a bit like a frontier town. So it was a nice try by Bedford and Philip, but to a degree the whole occasion emphasised Charles VII's triumph of Rheims, rather than counteracting it. Now, I thought it might be sensible to mention Catherine of Valois at this point, you know, Henry's mum, Henry V's wife. Catherine was with Henry when he went to France, although not present at the coronation. And indeed, up to this point, she had been very publicly visible at great occasions of state but after the French coronation, all that changed. The Earl of Warwick became the King's protector. Catherine of Valois and her household were separated from the King's household and essentially she was free to do what she willed, to go her own way, to call it a lonely day. Which was interesting, because in 1427 she had been at the centre of something of a panic for the parliamentary bufties and the Council of State. Queen consorts really couldn't marry Englishmen. The danger was that if they did, it would play merry hell with the delicate political balance. But unfortunately, Catherine had met the dashing young Edmund Beaufort, nephew of Cardinal Beaufort, and as a result had asked Parliament for permission to marry. Now for Gloucester, the idea of a Beaufort marrying the Queen was distinctly unattractive. So the marriage was comprehensively blocked. Or at least, if they'd wanted to proceed, They would either have had to have had the approval of an adult king and such a thing of course wasn't going to be available for many years yet or if they went ahead, Edmund would have to forfeit all his lands and live a life of love and penury. Edmund Beaufort wasn't ready for a life of penury which is a shame because Edmund Beaufort was destined to have an outstandingly rubbish military career and it would have been great to get him off to the country where we could do less damage. But by 1431, Catherine had anyway met someone else and was determined she wasn't going to be denied having a life. Now her new lover was called Owen Tudor of a Welsh noble house. There are all manner of stories about how they met, basically because no one really knew how they met. So loads of stories got made up instead on the principle of never letting the truth get in the way of a good piece of gossip. One story had it that Catherine fell in love with him when she saw him swimming in his speedos, another that he fell into her lap while dancing, all manner of stuff. But the important facts really are that Owen was a political non-entity. So it was unlikely that anyone would feel threatened, and to boot, he was a Welshman, and sad to say, in English law, Welshmen got a very bad deal. That kind of reflected their position in English society. So, for example, they couldn't own land east of Office Dyke. So the point is, Owen wasn't a threat to anyone, and finally Owen was up for it. He didn't have any land anyway, and you can't lose what you haven't got. So they married in secret while Catherine's son was getting crowned King of France. But the news, of course, quickly came out, and the marriage became a kind of open secret. Discreet, but not denied, and everyone had just had to accept it and go along with it. The marriage was accepted as legitimate, as were the offspring of the marriage. Owen was even given the enormous compliment of being made a naturalised Englishman. And in six years, Catherine and Owen had four children, one of whom died, and another, the youngest Owen, became a monk and lived out his life quietly. But the two other boys, Edmund and Jasper Tudor, would play an important political role. For the moment, Owen Tudor was safe, but when Catherine died in 1437, Gloucester came after him and had him slung into Newgate Jail. It took two years for Owen to get himself out of jail and he realised he'd never really be safe. But his sons were being brought up at Barking Abbey and for the moment he was one step ahead of the law. Gloucester, meanwhile, had been enjoying the king's absence in France. Henry's coronation in England had brought the protectorship to a formal end but as Beaufort was in France with the king, Gloucester was basically ruling supreme. And when the king returned... Gloucester decided it was time to make that clear to everyone. He had all of Beaufort's supporters replaced in the offices of state and replaced by his own men. Gloucester claimed a position as the king's chief minister, answerable only to the king. Now, this was the declaration of political war, and Gloucester thought he was in a good position to have finally seen off the Beaufort dog. But it was not to be. Hate it or loathe it, the men who Gloucester had dismissed were there for a reason, and the reason being they were jolly good. And unfortunately, the royal financial situation, never great, took a dramatic fall for the worse as wool exports fell, disrupted, ironically, by Gloucester's very own adventures in Hainault. With the costs of maintaining rule in Ireland, Gascony and Calais, normal revenues were completely insufficient to keep the wheels turning. One example year, in the 1420s, saw income at £64,000 and expenditure at £80,000. And that was typical. But the parliamentary buffets refused to budge, refused to vote taxation. Gloucester's regime was therefore completely undermined. But meanwhile, Gloucester's plan was to get Beaufort condemned for treason and completely out of the way, And his argument was that Beaufort was both a cardinal, and therefore responsible to the Pope, and a bishop, and therefore kind of responsible to the King in their thinking. And although he owed his allegiance to the King, he was in fact giving his allegiance to the Pope. This is what they call pluralism, more than one ecclesiastical job at the same time. Though that was pretty common, it said, not just Beaufort. But anyway, the real problem was the struggle between the power of the Pope and that of the King. The policy of state was that loyalty of the English clergy belonged first and foremost to the King of the English. And so on this basis, Beaufort would be declared a traitor. But unfortunately, not for the first time, not for the last time, Gloucester had miscalculated, and miscalculated badly. Beaufort still had supporters, he still had his enormous wealth to help with all those deficits which he dangled in front of Parliament. So when the time came and Parliament was assembled, Gloucester watched in dismay as no one would break the silence and accuse Beaufort of treachery. The game was played, the game was lost. Instead, within a year, Bedford was back in England and Beaufort and his supporters were reinstated. That was not the end for Gloucester, though, and his political machinations. For with bulletproof self-confidence, he was next planning to turn his big guns on the big brother himself. By this stage we're in 1434 and it's probably useful to flip back across the channel and talk about what's been going on there since Joan of Arc had been laid low. The answer was that things weren't brilliant but they'd stabilised. The war for England had become one of defence rather than attack. Bedford had organised defence around three sectors led by local commanders Arundel, Willoughby and Talbot. Each had something like 1,600 men under their command spread around the garrisons. The Norman estates themselves bore most of the cost of the war, voting the equivalent of 90,000 quid over three years, 1432 to 1435. In the 1420s, the situation in Normandy had become reasonably positive. The Norman nobility had become partners with the dual monarchy in expanding southwards into Dauphinist France. After the shock of the fighting, economic activity had revived. In the early 1430s, the situation deteriorated, but not terminally so. The change in emphasis from attack to defence had an immediate impact on the numbers interested in taking part of the war because there wasn't much to be gained in a defensive war. You know, you weren't going to go and conquer any land. And also, the risks were higher. The economy, not helped by bad weather and failed harvests, had gone into decline, and with it, local discontent with the English rule had increased. That meant much more reliance on English-only garrisons in towns and in turn that began to look like more of an occupation than a simple new Duke of Normandy. However, away from the borders, where the dislocation was worst, in the heartlands of Normandy rents and harvests were still good, property values good. The political community was robust and renewing itself. So, not brilliant, but fine. Paris was another story. It hadn't helped that Henry had left as quickly as his little legs could carry him. Grain prices in Paris had reached famine levels. French raids frequently reached Parisian hinterlands, and it began to feel like bandit country. In 1432, Anne of Burgundy had died, Bedford had taken up residency in Rouen, and Paris felt abandoned. So when he came back over to England in 1433, Bedford had two main aims. He was going to get a grip on the governance of the country, reinstating Beaufort and the competent officers of state that Gloucester had removed in his coup. And he was going to re-energise the country around a new offensive in France. Back to the offence. But England and St George, they don't like it up em. Let's drive them across the Loire to glory. That sort of thing. Parliament was right beside him and Bedford was able to set his own rules without a flicker of distress or irony, Parliament gave Bedford exactly what poor old Gloucester had been trying to get himself for a decade. The council was reduced to an advisory body. Bedford essentially had full reign. Gloucester was mightily miffed. What's he got that I haven't got? He fumed. Well, I don't know if he did fume that, but he was clearly fuming, and deep down I imagine that was part of the fuming, and he was to vent those fumes. He did this in 1434, when Bedford called a great meeting of the leading magnates and officers of state to put together a new war plan to turn it all around. While he was doing this, some of the military news coming back from France was more encouraging. Talbot was leading an offensive and regaining some strongholds that had fallen to the French. England appeared to have found a talented new young commander in John Fitzalan, Earl of Arundel, who intercepted and repelled an attempt by the Duke of Alençon to capture the Norman town of Avranche. But Gloucester had no interest in any feel-good stuff. Instead, he launched criticism directly at Bedford himself, criticising the way he'd managed the war, even with the imputation of wrongdoing. And in April and May, the Grand Council erupted into chaos. Gloucester hijacked the whole event with a massively ambitious plan for a huge offensive on the scale of the Agincourt campaign, OK, so snaps for ambition, but when asked how he was going to foot the £50,000 bill, Gloucester lost the power of speech. Because in the Treasury, it was old Mother Hubbard time. The net impact of all of this was to derail the attempt to agree a coherent strategy and led to a bust-up between Bedford and Gloucester so bad that the young king had to get involved and essentially tell the two uncles to eat their pride, to kiss and to make up. It's the first time we really see Henry having an influence, and it's an intervention that at least seems to have patched things up for a while. But militarily, none of this helped. And while the Mathering went on, the talented new commander got his backside kicked at the town of Cherbarois, and by 1435, Arundel was dead after having his leg amputated failed to save his life, and the war was once again going backwards. English hopes by now, in fact, had begun to turn to the idea of truce, or even peace. While the English had carried everything before them, there'd really been no point in talking the Turkey of peace. But now that things were going poo-wood, there was a real desire to at least get a truce so they could begin to put their house in order. Now, as it happens, Philip of Burgundy was thinking the same way. He made no secret of the fact that he'd met the French in January and February, and he proposed to the English that they use the papacy as a mediator. The Pope had maintained a pretty neutral line throughout the war, and so he was the obvious choice as an honest broker. The truth is that the Armagnac constantly wooed Burgundy behind the scenes to come back to their side. Philip of Burgundy constantly considered it, constantly reviewed where the balance lay between the English alliance and a French rapprochement and the balance was coming much closer down on the Armagnac side. Already, Burgundy had agreed a six-year truce. Philip made it clear to the English that the war was too bitter. Peace was essential to heal the wounds. The result of this was a conference for September 1435 at Arras in northern France, with the papacy acting as mediators and delegations from the English and Charles Seventh, while Burgundy was also to be in attendance to help with his good offices. Although the conference was supposed to start on the 1st of July, actually it took the best part of six weeks for the conference to assemble. This was the stuff of grand diplomacy. Each of the delegations had over 500 men. The town and surrounding area of Arras was stuffed with the pavilions and servants and baggage of the great men of the age. Unfortunately, the Congress of Arras was not the finest moment for English diplomacy. The English delegation was led by Cardinal Beaufort and the Archbishop of Canterbury, Kemp. Of course, it's really difficult to look at the Congress of Arras without hindsight getting in the way, but it's difficult to avoid the conclusion that the English lacked a certain amount of realism. They also seemed to lack subtlety and to fail to understand how close to the brink Burgundy stood. Essentially, at Arras, both sides, French and English, had to look super, super eager for peace. Everyone knew that Burgundy expected some accommodation to be reached. The English still had an ace in the hole, but however much Philip now wanted peace, he also faced a major constraint. He still had his honour to consider. Charles VII had, after all, had his father killed at Montereux, and that couldn't just be forgotten. The talks, meanwhile, founded on the same old, same old, the English claim to the throne of France. Just as so many times Edward III had refused to renounce the claim, so now did Henry VI's representatives. The basic rubric of the Congress of Arras is that the English came across as inflexible and they failed to pursue the French offers. At best, this got to the point of an offer to swap Normandy, marriage of Henry to a royal princess, and use of the swivel chair at weekends in return for England's dropping of their claim to the French throne. But at this point... Rather than talking that through, the English delegation walked out and headed for home. Well, it's interesting. I have to say that some of the accusations of incompetence against the English delegation do seem a little harsh. This was by no means the first time both sides had hit that basic, immovable hurdle. And unlike us, Both and Kemp didn't know, like we do, that all the English military successes of the last 15 years, and indeed last 70 years, were not to be repeated again on a scale like this for literally centuries. But in general, whatever excuses we find for them, the Congress was a disaster. Probably the biggest piece of idiocy was to walk out, because it completely ignored the fact that this left the French and Burgundians in Arras together. But nonetheless, on the 6th of September, the English left. Philip the Good had seen enough. The Pope's mediators came to talk to him, Philip pointed out he was bound to the English by a treaty. Pshaw," said the papal guys, "Pshaw, Don't worry about that, Gov, we can fix that with God. Small matter of a binding oath, not a problem for the church. Consider yourself released. Puff. This was good enough for Philip. By the 10th of September, he'd indicated that he would indeed meet the French. There has to be a strong suspicion that a lot of pre-work had got into this that both sides knew darned well what would and wouldn't be acceptable, an agreement that saved Philip's honour for the murder of his father and security from the Armagnac, from where all of this had started. As they negotiated, in Rouen, Bedford lay ill. And on the 14th of September, Bedford died, and his death was a massive, massive blow to the English hopes. Bedford was really the only man with the stature to keep the Burgundians and the English together. And then on the 21st of September, the announcement came out that hit the English really hard. Burgundy was once more part of the French world. Charles Seventh had apologised to Philip for the death of his dad. Sorry. To make sure Burgundy was satisfied with the sincerity of the offer, some land was given them, and crucially, land along the Somme. Now this was particularly clever, because they meant that Burgundy and England would come into direct conflict pretty soon. The Pope had given Philip clearance to renege on his treaty with England and Philip once more paid homage to Charles VII and recognised him as the true King of France. The English went into a convulsion of fury over Philip's defection. The mob ran riot. Gloucester stormed about the place saying he'd told everybody that they needed to launch a big expedition next year. Henry VI received a letter from Philip which did not address him as King of France and that made him burst into tears. But the truth is, the move had been well on the cards. England had played a difficult hand, true enough, but they'd played that difficult hand rather poorly, and now they were in the poop. All around them, their enemies, Burgundy and France, gathered to throw the dual monarchy out of France. Now, this week we have the results of the great coin competition with the coin and medieval bronze mount donated by Rob. Thanks, Rob, for your great generosity. So, here we go. Here's the answer. Drum roll, Raising attention. In reverse order, the winner of the bronze mount is... Ta-da! Cool Breeze Music. yo Congratulations, Mr Cool. And now, the moment you've all been waiting for, the winner of the silver penny. Well, the winner is... Ta-da! Robert Baird. Yea, and indeed, yahoy, Robert and Mr Cool. please send us your postal address and we'll do the rest. And now, I am delighted to say that Kevin returns to the history of
1: England with another word. So, over to you, Kevin. Thanks, David. This episode's word is private. It's a very common and very important word in modern English. And it entered English in the late 1300s. This was a time when numerous French words were flowing into English. For nearly three centuries since the Norman Conquest, French had dominated the higher echelons of English society. And French words were flowing into English by the thousands. One of those French words which entered English during this period was the word private. Today, the word private means confidential or secret. It also means not sanctioned or controlled or operated by the government. So, private is the opposite of public, another word which entered English from French around this same time. Today, we tend to value our privacy. We want our own space. And we sometimes even speak of our right to privacy. But when private first came into the language, it wasn't necessarily something you desired or aspired to. It actually had a sense of being left out or kept separate. And in order to get a better sense of the original meaning, we only have to look at its close cousin, the word deprive. In fact, privacy and deprive share the same Latin root, which meant to separate or set aside. If you're deprived of something, you're left out. And if you're left out on your own, you're in private. So that's the original connection between those two words. Now, I said that the word private came into English in the late 1300s during the period of English commonly referred to as Middle English. So what did English speakers say before the word private entered the language? Well, they used the word sundry. That was the Old English word which referred to something separate or apart or distinct. And it still survives as the modern word sundry, which refers to something with individual or distinct parts. In modern usage, it often follows another adjective. So we might speak of various and sundry things, meaning various individual things. And we might speak of all and sundry parts, meaning all individual parts. Because sundry often follows the word and, it's often misheard and misused as unsundry. So you might hear someone say various unsundry things or all unsundry parts. But it really should be and sundry, not Unsundry. But again, sundry was the old English word meaning separate, individual, or distinct. But in the late Middle English period, the English word sundry started to be replaced by the new French word private. So if you were private, you were on your own, which could be a good thing or a bad thing. It meant that you were not operating in an official capacity, so you didn't enjoy official benefits or recognition. That meant something private was often considered to be inferior or subordinate. And that's the sense which led to the military rank of private. A private was a fresh young soldier. He was someone at the bottom rung of the ladder, so he lacked an official rank or title. He was deprived of an officer's command and authority, so he became known as a private. But over time, not being sanctioned by the government, came to be considered a good thing in the minds of many people. So as people sought to do things on their own, the term was used to describe activities done in a non-governmental capacity. And that led to terms like private enterprise, and private school, and private property. In the 1600s, it led to the word privateer, a private ship owner who used his ship for the government's military purposes. It also led to the term private eye, as distinguished from an official police detective. So today, being private doesn't necessarily mean we're being left out. It's something that many people actually try to achieve. So that's the word private. Back to you, David. Brilliant. Thanks, Kevin. So that's pretty much it.
0: Just remains for me to thank our donators. So thanks to Bart, Christian, Brenda, Scott, Simon, Nancy, Michelle, Brad, John, Janita, Matthew, cool simon and david and thanks to all of you for listening have a great week